Hi everyone, Chris here. Marks and I just wanted to say a big thank you for listening. Our numbers have been pretty good, so we're glad that you've taken the time to listen. If you like the show or know people that you think might like the show, don't hesitate to let them know. Being new, all the help we can get to get this pot off the ground is a big help. On that front, a big thanks to Pete, who every week sends out a link to his vast network of followers. It's a big help to the show, and we're really super appreciative. There are, of course, other ways you can help us, and that is financially. Head along to the Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash gumshoe. And don't worry if you missed it, I'll put a link up on the Facebook page, and you can click on it that way. Speaking of, you can find us on Facebook by searching Gumshoe Sports Report. You can find us on Twitter on the handle Gumshoe Sports. If you want to drop us an email, onair at gumshoesports.com is where you'll find us. I respond to every email, so don't hesitate if there's something you want to let us know. Lastly, just a small warning that our last segment contains some news that may not be appropriate for younger ears. There's nothing too graphic in it, but it does relate to an explosion that happened around a sporting fixture. Just wanted to let you guys know in advance, I know there are a few of you that listen in front of your kids. Well, on that cheery note, I hope you enjoy the show. Marks and I actually had a lot of fun taping this one, and hope you enjoy it too. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, are you sick of hearing about sledging, flying under the radar and just taking it one week at a time? Well, you've come to the right place. The Gumshoe Sports Report is here to cut through the rubbish and give you unfiltered hard facts. Failing that, you can listen to two blokes whose faces absolutely fit for radio as they give you their own sizzling hot take on everything sport. And to kick things off, here's your host, Marcus Wilson. Thank you, Bianca. Well, it's been another big week in sports and we've got lots to talk about, so let's get things started. Chris, welcome again. Thanks, Marcus. Chris, let's tee off with golf first and normally a very genteel sport, but you've got a cracker of a story. I guess a little sad in some ways, but explosive in others. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Um, so this relates... Trying to be sensitive, but no, go on. This relates to... Um... A U.S. golfer, Lucas Glover, who this week had a bit of an issue with his better half. Um, now, in the Plays Championship, they've got a bit of a different rundown of how they do things. Normally with a golf tournament, it's you play your first two rounds, there's a cut, and then you, if you make the cut, you play the next two rounds. The Players' Championship is two days, cut, one day, cut, and then you, there's only a certain amount that are left to play the last round. So Lucas Glover... Makes the initial cut, then gets cut after Saturday, and Mrs. Glover, not happy. Not sure. The innuendo I got from the articles I read that she may have been hitting the juice a little on the Saturday, but went back to their rental property and started beating him, started beating his mother-in-law, got to the point where she actually, I'm not sure why, but she actually called the police and then told the police that she was being um, abused by... Lucas Glover's mother-in-law and then the cops called back and by that stage Lucas Glover managed to get the phone off of her and said no my wife's gone completely I think he used the word she's gone nuts Mm -hmm. Um, it all sort of kicked off this week and there were um, she was given restraining orders and the whole lot so it went full blown and then I just read an article this morning that said she was now back in there for bazillion square foot mansion, so all apparently has been forgiven. And fairly, uh, is it fair to say that it was definitely linked to his performance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, one hundred percent. Yeah, um, that was part of her rantings um, while she was doing it. Is 
why aren't you better and how did you miss this cut and all that sort of stuff. So, um, like you don't have enough pressure standing exactly. over the tee at the best of times. It raises the question. I mean, we see 99 out of 100 uh, partners of sporting athletes. They, they seem so supportive and... In my thoughts, it would be that they'd be appreciative that they're along for this great ride. There'd be some ups and downs, but basically you're going to have a, a life of high finances. But I guess there's one or two out there that they want to keep that dream going and, and they're very invested in the sport. So I guess tensions boil over, whether it's about finances or whether it's just about being involved in the sport. And I'm not sure where he's ranked. I haven't sort of seen anything, but I would say he's a top 50 in the world player, but... He's not like top five where you're expecting him to be making the final couple of groups every um, every tournament. Mm. So I'm not even sure where this <laughs> anger has come from that you go, all right, well, you're not in the top 40 or whatever it was in the last day of the Players' Championship. So, yeah, whether she's just juiced up and... and uh, it's brought out deeper one. issues. Maybe she thought she was uh, with a, a golfer that was much better than Lucas and, and has been sitting on it for... For a while. I've not watched it, but there's the Wives and Girlfriends show. I think they call it <laughs> Wags on, on Fox. That um, I think there's a few of them that are sort of happy to tag along with their their other half's um, exploits and achievements and sort of pretend that they're a part of that. So, I mean, yes, you need to have a, um, a loving better half if you're going to probably compete at the, at the highest level, but... Um, yeah, maybe she want to get out and start swinging her own clubs if she was that worried about it. Yeah, that, and let's keep an eye on Lucas and, and see how he performs over the next couple of weeks to months and see if uh, the wrath of uh, a lovely lady can drive him along or just shell shock him into just Which, Ian Baker Finch style <laughs> or whether it meltdown. Just scares him. He's looking over his shoulder before every tee shot to see if she's standing there watching. So no, a, a look as much as oh, look, I had a laugh and said it's it's hilarious. It's it's one of the few times where you see domestic violence sort of the roles reversed. Mm. And um, it was interesting that it was made such a big deal when this perhaps happens quite a lot and isn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily be big news if it was, say, a woman on the LPGA and her mm. husband beating her. At, um, but very unusual that you said it's actually linked to his performance. Like a lot of sporting people have a backstory that you don't hear about, but this sounds like sport and tension in a relationship all linked which is very unusual hmm. so watch this space now that they're back in the she's back in the family home it'll be interesting to see whether we sort of hear too much more of this i think it'll just sort of disappear but uh no you know, i get an email every day that sort of says the golf news and this sort of pricked my attention on monday and i sort of been following it the last couple of days and it was like a, an episode of days of our lives <laughs> uh... and and how's the rest of the tournament panned out all right, well, the, that was the Players' Championship. So that was last week. Mm. Um, and so we had... Um, I said we were on choke watch for Webb Simpson. Mm. Didn't happen. He That's was right. runaway leader. And I think he double bogey the last and still won by four or five mm. shots. So um, Jason Day, I think, finished in the top 10. That was probably That's right. about it for us. So um, this week we've gone to... Um, Dallas, is it? Texas? Uh, I'm not sure where it is because it's, oh. it's in a new place. It's the Byron Nelson um, Championship. And we've got uh, Mark Leishman, who had an absolute blinder in the first round, mm. went 10 under. Um, Was it career best for him, that round? Oh, I would think so. Mm. I mean, six birdies and two eagles he had. So, And he said he reckons he left another couple oh. out there. So uh, interesting uh, to see what he would have scored if he'd 
actually hit the ball well. Um, he's currently leading after three rounds at 17 under. Um, and Aussie Matt Jones is uh, tied for third at the moment. He's four shots back. So um, the only other Aussie that was sort of in the top a billion was uh, Adam Scott. He was uh, in a tie for 19th, and he's eight shots off the pace. So I was following the, the leaders there, uh, Aaron Wise and, and Mark Leishman, and during the back nine, they were sort of exchanging the leads. So it's going to be whoever holds their nerve, I think, in the final round. Yeah, and I actually like Mark Leishman. He's your... I'd say you knock about golfer. He does like you can mm. walk past him in the street and not even no. know who is a golfer. He's got a bit of a belly on him and a beard, and um, he almost could be a cross between you and I, <laughs> um, taking our best uh, our best attributes. So, no, an interesting week in uh, in golf this week, and uh, yeah, I'll bring you some more uh, exploits of uh, the Glover family and whether Leishman can hold on next week. Let's turn to football. Chris, last week we talked about umpires and players get, getting in contact, touching umpires during a game. What are some of the verdicts? Uh, you were pretty confident that all the guys that got reported would be sitting out this week. I thought May might have got off, and I thought the Kernow boys were both in trouble. And as of Tuesday night, all three of them had got off, but then the AFL weren't happy with uh, the Kernow boys and decided to launch their own... Um, appeal, which highly unusual. I think there's only been sort of three or four of these that have ever happened. And uh, Charlie ended up getting uh, his fine stood, and then Ed ended up getting a week, which I thought was probably maybe about right. I thought I thought that Ed's Ed was the one that basically pushed the umpire, pushed him away, hand in the chest. Nothing. There was literally no force in it at all. But I think. It's a bit like the Tom Hawkins one from the week before. It was a, it was an action against the umpire. Mm. Stephen May was demonstrating something and made incidental contact. And I think they're the sort of ones that you don't mind players getting a fine for. But regardless of whether they're actually shoving an umpire, if the action is there that is a knocking the hand away, pushing them away making deliberate contact with them regardless of the force, I think that's where you can expect them to get a week from now on. That seems to be the um, the precedent they've set after this week. Um, Charlie's was a little bit different. Charlie's was weird. It was like he was shepherding the umpire away from running into the packs. So I'm not sure if he thought that he was a player that was coming in and he was trying to keep him away, but he basically put an arm out and then the umpire ran into his arm, because he literally stuck it out right as the umpire was about to run past him. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to rant and rave about him not getting a week. I thought he should still have got a week because there's no... I, I don't know what he was... I actually literally don't even know what he was thinking at the time. So, um, so no, yeah, the uh, Ed got a week, Charlie got a fine, which was... All in itself interesting, but the hoo-ha in the, cup in the day before the um, appeal was heard was really interesting. Um, our boy, Paddy Dangerfield, um, came out and said that he was sort of a bit confused as to where the ruling stood after Tomahawk had got the, the mm-hmm. one game and then um, Ed had, had missed out. This ended up causing a bit of a furor amongst... I'll say predominantly Carlton Nuffies, who just went completely bananas, saying this is the 
this is the players' association rep. Why is he saying something against the players? Um, this is ridiculous. But I think I think he was the voice of common sense in all of this. And if it had been anyone else, they would have, I think, would have been taken a bit more seriously. But it came, became a bit of a story that the the players' association was going against the players, and um, it was. I think I heard one person even say that it was his fault that. Um, Ed had been given a week and just ridiculous statements like that. Like I just, I think if you actually sit down and have a look at the at the video of the incidents and what you would think would be common sense regarding what you want the image of AFL and relations between players and umpires to be, you would have to say that that's not appropriate action. The others maybe get away with of all the difficult things to police in afl you'd hope that touching an umpire is going to be the real black and white one just don't touch them it's not that hard keep it nice and simple like that and it seems like they're fairly consistent so i did notice this week though that the umpires were generally like taking a meter back from a couple of incidents that i saw where there may have been contact which i think is a good idea because it's not like we see in ice hockey where an umpire or a ref will come and jump in the middle of two players about to box on to try and stop it. The AFL umpires don't do that. So there's really no real reason for them to be blowing a whistle and saying, this is going to cost you $1,000 mm. every time they get in a melee. That's not up to you to stop them doing that. If they want to throw their money away by being peanuts, blow your whistle, get the game going, and, and move away. You don't need to be... If someone boxes someone in the face, cool. You just sit there and write down their, their number and report mm. it. That's all you need to do. You're not a... Don't be a part of it. Don't put yourself in a situation where you could potentially be at risk of that happening. It's probably my recommendation for them, but I'm not sure how many of them listen to the Gumshoe Sports Report, but if they do, just maybe get a little notebook out and write that down. Now, Ed Kernow is a handy, promising player, but would you have thought it would make a 100 points difference between Melbourne and Carlton? Now, that was a staggering performance. Very good by the Demons, but just hopeless by the Blues. Oh, and even Essendon. Like, you look at those games last week Mm. and you would think that those two results would have been completely the other way around. Um, Essendon blew Geelong out of the water. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and then Carlton were back to being meek and bit pathetic really um this week so i don't i mean i think last week was they got essendon at the perfect time essendon were as low as you're going to be um and they were i didn't necessarily think that they were ready for a win i didn't think they were playing that well that they deserved a win but um if you're ever going to get someone at their lowest point that was that was the time and whether it's it's a natural sort of letdown they've the euphoria, like even watching the players walk down the race afterwards, you think they'd won the grand final. Mm. Um, and I thought afterwards, I'm like, you may just be getting a, a smidge ahead of yourselves by winning one game. And all the people that said, oh, this is a reward for the the shoots that we've seen over the last couple of years, you've had two years of being completely rubbish mm. and you had one good game against a team who was at its absolute lowest point. Mm-hmm. And you didn't blow them out of the water. Like the game was still sort of up for grabs five minutes into the last quarter. So it happens with every low, lowly team. Basically, if they have a win, 
you're very surprised to see them back it up. For that very reason, they enjoy that feeling of winning probably a little too much, whereas the top side would be a lot more analytical about the holes in that performance, whereas they would have been on top of the world. Kind of understandable, but... And if you look sort of three or four weeks ago, Essendon and Melbourne were sort of in similar positions. Yeah. Um, but since they played each other, it's just... It's been all downwards for Essendon and all up for Melbourne. Melbourne are back sort of being in uh, considered as top eight contenders and um, possibly even a little bit more. But um, I wouldn't have predicted that sort of that sort of blowout. But I'm not stunned by that sort of performance either. Hey, while we're on Melbourne, they take on Adelaide in round ten in Alice Springs. Yep. The Crows are an amazing story this season. Number one, they've had a shocking run with injuries, probably never really seen by the Crows in, what, 10 years that they've had such a shocking run? Or... Yeah, I can't remember it being this bad, but it just it's all soft tissue stuff. Like yeah. it's, it's not like Ren's knee or anything like that where you just get these impact injuries. This is just hamstring, basically. So they entered Friday night's match against the Western Bulldogs with nine first-choice players out of the side. For most clubs, it's game over there's no chance you win it but they won it impressively and it's a credit to them that they've got the depth to continue winning games and once they if they can get to the the halfway mark with uh what would it be about an eight four record we'd be looking at i would think that would probably be about if they can get to that and then get taylor walker back then get rory sloan back and then get Matt Crouch could be back this week but get a whole lot of players back they are a force to be reckoned with given what they've been able to achieve in the first half of the season with half the list out. Yeah, they've, I was actually really impressed. I'd, I was concerned once the rain came on Friday night that that would bring the dogs back, sort of back to the Crows level a bit. But mm. then once Bulldogs sort of kept their handball style going and you could just see that it wasn't working for them, they they were able to get the the one handball out, but it was that second handball to the guy that was really out wide that just wasn't hitting the target. And the Crows literally just played get ball, kick ball. Um, didn't care where it went. It was just, if we kick it 30 metres and it's a couple of handballs and comes back 10, it's a 20-metre game. It was very, it was almost rugby union style. They just played for played for position and that's, that's set it up again, start again. So... Uh, I, I heard both teams broke their tackling record, and it was a real slugfest. But um, it's good to see Ellis Yolman, who I didn't... Everyone was raving about the start of his year. I thought his first month was really pretty average, but his last four weeks has been really good. Um, Hugh Greenwood, um, who this week was... I think it was this week, was on... Um, no, it was last week. was on um, Fox Footy, mm. talking about his mum and oh. all that sort of stuff. He had a good game as well. Double-digit tackles. He was only behind Jack McRae, I think, who had 13, I think. So. Who just is just racking up stats like how he doesn't have leather poisoning is, <laughs> is beyond me. Um, and then Eddie just doing things that only Eddie can do. You see, like, Bryce Gibbs missing a... Who is not only a good kick but a long kick but like not making the distance from 35 metres out dead in front and then Eddie just slotting them from like 40 on the boundary line and yeah he's a freak 100 games for the Crows over 250 goals in those 100 games so even I can work out that's two and a half goals per game yep for Carlton 1.5 goals per game that must be so frustrating for the Blues but I guess he 
he came to the Crows when he was at the top of his game or yeah, he's and he's come to a better side with this more options to for the Crows to go with. Yeah, and I think I think his game has improved. Um he's it's probably his consistency's improved more than mm. his actual output. Like he his good games for Carlton were what you're seeing but you'd only see him sort of one in every five or six mm. games. We're I'm not sure why, but he's managed to extract a bit of consistency. Um perhaps just with the amount of actual ball that's gone in over the last few years, but Got a bit of trivia for you. Yes. There's only three AFL players now that have kicked 250 goals and played 100 games for two different teams. Oh. Eddie's obviously one. Do you oh. know the other two? You might have a clue. Yes. One's playing now. Okay. One isn't. Uh, Kennedy from the Eagles? No. Oh. Mm. All right. What club? You're looking... All right. The no, cu- no. I probably won't even get it still. Buddy? Yes. Okay. Of course. And plug it. Yeah, right. So he's right up with those two. Yes. So uh, I think he's uh, um, I think he's still got to kick another 50-odd goals to get to, I think it's 300 for two different teams. Mm-hmm. And those other two have kicked 300, I, I believe, for both of those two other teams as well. So It's kind of dangerous predicting this, but Eddie's basically said, I've got two more years after this, and then he'll be satisfied or feels like that'll be the end of his career. I kind of like I kind of like players that know the end is near and and that's it. But the way he's going, I guess perhaps his pace will probably drop off. Well, I read the um, the newspaper article where he said, "This is it. Yep. I'm, after this, I'm done." Which is, I believe, the end of 2020. His contract is up. Mm-hmm. But then, in the interview straight after the game, he said, <laughs> "No, no, see how we go." But at this stage, I've got to play. He goes, oh, "I'd said." My first four-year contract was, yeah. was going to be it, so he managed to eke out another three, and he may go on again. But this year hasn't necessarily been his his most consistent year with the Crows. But um, just that last quarter last week in the showdown, and then this game—I mean, this game was just—it was made for anybody. No one else could touch the ball, no one else could pick it up, and he's taking overhead marks and kicking them from everywhere and. There was also a little one percenter that, if it had come off, would have been a magic one. Where he's uh, might have been the uh, first quarter still, and the ball's coming into the forward fifty. He tried to just give it a little toe poke up to get him in the Socceroos squad. Yeah, that was it, cross of the year. Yeah, but it just didn't quite come off. Uh, now the Crows hopefully won't have any more injuries or a run of injuries like this, but they've they've managed to excel anyway. There is a new one. I'm not sure if you heard about this. Yes, I, I so think they've, I had, they've had nine <laughs> midfielders basically go down. Now they've got a trainer down. Yes. <laughs> so for those of you who didn't see, trainer comes out after a goal was kicked and he's handing his water bottle around. And the, the umpire is literally about to bounce the ball and then looks up and sees the trainer and goes, trainer, get out. <laughs> and so the trainer scuppers out of there and then sits on the bench and the next shot is of the trainer standing there rubbing his hammy. What? What is going on down there? The sad thing is he probably feels like he's part of the epidemic, but really you just got nothing to do with it, mate. It actually got that bad that I saw one of the um, uh, girls that works at uh, the Crows who is a friend of mine, um, and I just happened to mention to her Friday afternoon, look, if anyone goes down, mm. I've got the boots at the ready, let me know, I'm keen. So uh, she did mention that she thought that may be an opportunity. Um, so... Eddie in one pocket, me in the other. Uh, the goals would have been... It would have been raining goals instead of 
buckets and buckets of water. I definitely believe you could kick the goals, whether you could uh, see out the game. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seeing out the game would be a problem. Now, back to my issue with the injuries. They're they're doing great guns with a, a long list of injuries, but if they had any more, could they... Could they cover the losses? You went and saw the sample match between Glenelg and the Crows. What did I, you like about it? It was a blockbuster. Um, it wasn't a blockbuster <laughs> at all. It was the 8th v 10 on the ladder, I think. But um, it wasn't so much their midfield. Like They had um, Riley O'Brien, who was sort of talked about earlier in the week, mm. maybe playing instead of Source if a Source didn't get up with his back or hip, I think it might have been as well but also with the birth of his child. Now, in the end, um, they did have a, a baby girl earlier in the week and he managed to play, but he was um, he almost played the same as the Bulldogs' Ruckman do in that they compete, but then as soon as the ball hits the ground, he becomes another midfielder. He was um, like really getting in and under the packs as well. So competing against, uh, from some of the afternoon, against uh, Jesse White, who of previous Swans and Swans, Collingwood yep. fame. Um, yeah, and that was that was a good, actually a good battle till Jesse Watt, I think, did his shoulder and got stretched off. Um, but, uh, no, him, I thought uh, Harry Deer played really well on the forward line. Um, didn't get a real lot of ball down there, but when he did, sort of took uh, a, a few good marks. And um, young Himmelberg, he just clunked everything that came anywhere near him yesterday. So... It's promising, but if you have a look at what the Crows are probably lacking, it's it's not big, tall key forwards. Um, it's not looking great for them like today. They've got a few injuries, but um, sort of long-term, mm. I, I think it, it's a it's a good sign. Like you, you want as many players in form as you can, but um, sort of wouldn't mind a few more midfielders given what's going on at the moment. Alistair Clarkson, the coach of Hawthorne, is known, is almost lauded for being happy to play ugly to to win, and he's been very effective at it over the years. But it sounds like Clarko himself is now getting a bit uptight about some of the tactics used that are perhaps not great for the game. Well, yeah, this was really weird. If it was anyone else, I'd go, what are you doing? <laughs> but Clarko puts in a call to Gil this week and says, let's go and have a coffee. So he goes and has a coffee. I think it was Monday morning. And so uh, my understanding is that Gil didn't really know what it was about. Just went, oh, yeah, all right, right, let's let's catch up, sit down for a coffee. And then Clarko pulls out the laptop and goes, look at this, look at this. And he's pointing to um, the Sydney defenders from the weekend with their blocking of predominantly Jared Ruffett. I think he was thinking he was getting a bit of a rough end of the stick. And it basically comes about when a, a high ball gets kicked in and the defender who is defending uh, Roughhead will basically just stand in the way and shepherd, but without putting his hands out, do everything he can to stop Roughhead getting a run at the ball. And so his object is not to go for the ball itself. It's to stop Roughhead. And I think Clarko was sort of making the point. I'm pretty confident that Clarko didn't show anything down the other end that was going on. (laughs) or the previous five years of all of their defenders who did the same thing to allow Gibson, or to make Gibson look like he was a good defender when <laughs> actually he was just taking uncontested marks time after time. So it, an interesting um, 
A, it was interesting that he went straight to the top and didn't have to sort of go through what you would imagine were the official channels to go through if you wanted to make a complaint. Um, interesting that he bypassed the umpiring department altogether to get to seek clarification, I think is the jargon words they like to use when they basically say the umpires had a stinker. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing was, was very weird. And all the reports I heard and all the, like, radio, television that I've seen about it have basically just canned Clarko for you can't be serious that you of all people are mm. complaining about this. So um, it'd be interesting to see if anything sort of happens from that. I, I no, did notice that nothing from the AFL was said about he should have gone through the right channels. It was all kind of just swept under the carpet a bit. you got to think a few of these informal meetings are occurring all the time, just why do it in a public? Pl- Why do it in a coffee yeah, shop? That's true. In a busy coffee shop in Melbourne at seven a.m. on a Monday morning, when mm. everyone's going to see it, um, go to the AFL headquarters if you want to. Like, I don't think anyone's going to care if you. I'm, I'm sure that they've got a nice Nespresso machine or something sort of in the corner that they could uh, <laughs> oh, sure. whip up something nice for him. What's your thought on the tactic? I, I, I like. It's never going to happen, but I like the pure game where people are actually going for the ball and not just being, you know, an empty carton of beer just standing there and getting yeah, in the way. Yeah, just getting in the way. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, in an ideal world, that that's what would happen. You'd have defenders that just punch a snot out of it, and if you happen to collect a bit of ear along the way, then then so be it. But I don't think that's I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that's ever going to happen. And how do you? They can't even police, like holding the ball. So how are you going to police a, a block in a in a marking contest? Um, yeah, uh, it happens, and it, it's infuriating as as hell that you don't see the best forwards being able to do their job the best they can. It's probably the only part of the ground that, like, if a good defender wants to, like, you look at Alex Rance for example. He can defend a guy one-on-one. He can come in and punch and do all that sort of stuff. No one's trying to stop him from doing his job unless there's a a little mini forward that mm. wants to sort of step in his way. But that doesn't happen as often as blocking of the forward does at the moment. Midfielders generally, the, the tagging thing's gone, so it's just midfielders running head-to-head and blasting it out. So uh, such is life, I think, for a forward. Never going to win the... Brownlow again, never going to get looked after. I think that's just the way it is. Let's head to the racetrack, Chris, and a drought broken in the supercars in Winton. Yeah, Rick Kelly um, driving for Nissan uh, in a big week for them. Uh, managed to get his first win since 2011. Um, it was it was a good race, and sort of as we said, um, a big week with Nissan announcing that they were pulling out of the V8s. Uh, as of next season, so he, uh, Rick and his brother Todd are both co-owners of the team, and Todd got quite emotional after Saturday's race, and um, yeah, shed a tear or two, and um, yeah, it was. I'm not entirely sure what what's going to be happening next year. I got the impression from the coverage that uh, they both knew that this was basically on the cards, and uh, it was only a sort of a matter of time before it, it, they actually pulled the pin. So. Rick used to be part of the um, Young Holden drivers squad, so whether he goes and and whether the, their whole team goes and buys um, 
some Holden cars and becomes associated with them, mm-hmm. or whether they just sort of go with with whoever's around. But there's four um, four Nissans floating around in the field. So one of them being um, Simona Di Salvestro, which put, perhaps puts in uh, jeopardy her her future with um, V8s and. A lot of the naysayers will say, "Well, she's sort of middle of the pack at best," but she's quite a quite an accomplished racer, um, and it's not a novelty no. factor of having a, a woman driver in there. She's she's got there from from merit alone. So, and her last couple of races have been reasonably promising. So, um, yeah, even watching Sunday's race, um, Caruso and Rick Kelly were both. Sort of there and thereabouts for most of the race, and um, Di Silvestro, I think, was sort of floating around mid-pack, but um, sort of fifteenth sort of range. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with them moving on. Just back to Rick Kelly. Imagine the mindset of many many sports you can contribute and be part of a winning side without being a huge winner. But Rick Kelly hasn't won for seven years. Mm. So do you ever just think, oh? Well, like, what's the point where you go? Well, I, if I can't win it, I won't be involved. Or I don't know. I don't know the mindset of a motor motor racer. Like, well, going back to my days in motor racing. Actually, hang on, I have the go karts. Uh, <laughs> like, you're pushing a go kart down a down a hill in yeah. Cove. Um, no, I don't know. Well, the, perhaps because he's the owner as well. Yeah. It's sort of a bit easier to sort of stay involved. And um, and I suppose they just love the, the competition and racing. But and he, I mean, he looks like he's never shaved before. Like He could part. Yeah. He'd still be getting ID'd in nightclubs and stuff. And he, I think he's 36, I heard someone say today. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, good on him. He's he's seems to be one of the genuinely nice guys of the paddock. Um, he's always sort of there and thereabouts without ever sort of being a, mm. a major threat. But he's actually had a really good season. Um, the, the entire season, he's sort of been steadily building towards something. And and the Nissans have actually are starting to get a bit of pace. And um, particularly with him and Caruso um, sort of pushing each other along at the moment. And they, in Sunday's race, they were neck and neck the entire race. They just, and like bumping and it was... They certainly weren't uh, pleasant teammates with each other. So, um, I mean, good on him, good on the team. Like, it, to, for it to happen on the week where their team had basically um, had their rug pulled out from underneath them, it was um, it was good to sort of end the week on, on some positives. So, um, having a look at uh, moving on to Sunday's race, um, we had Scott McLaughlin in pole position um, next to his teammate Fabian Coulthard. Light went green. Everyone went pretty much except Scott McLaughlin, who completely bogged down his car, and within oh, I think three or four corners was eighth. Mm. Um, and it was only some some fast thinking by their um, strategists that basically had him had him in the pits and then put him last by like a half a lap and let him cruise around at his own pace because he had a quick car, and that managed to sort of get him. By the time the second pit stops had happened, he'd moved himself back up in a second place, but. Um, uh, Shane Van Gisbergen um, just had too much pace in his car and, and overtook him sort of a few laps from the end. And so, I mean, for Scott McLaughlin, it's good. He gets third place. He had a bit of a stinker um, on Saturday, but he still retains, I think it's a 130-point lead in the championship, which is the way most um, weekends are with the V8s. There's 300-point weekends. So most races have two races, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. 
and they might have like a, I think this week was 40 laps Saturday and then 67 laps on Sunday. Um, so it's basically an entire race win without him scoring points before anyone can get past him. So um, he said, look, I heard him interviewed afterwards. He said, that, well, it's disappointing that, to have such a, a poor start um, to get themselves back into a mm. position where he was never really threatening for the win, but he didn't lose points. He had a reasonable result. And if you keep pumping out thirds, it's a long way back for the chasers. I guess when you get that early points lead, you, it affects the way you would race. Like you, you wouldn't have to go health or leather all the time. If, you, if you're in that situation, you go, well, as long as I can not let any uh, narrowing of the gap, then yep. it's good. Yeah, and I mean, if it, if it's coming down by like ten points every race, mm. he's going to win a couple yeah. sort of along the way. So, um, yeah, and even Van Gisbergen, he still only finished second, so there's only one spot behind him. So, I think for the whole weekend, I think as of last weekend, he was 150 points behind. So, he's lost like 15 points in a in a weekend. So, um, they're going up to Darwin uh, in a couple of weeks' time, which I think is a track that suits. Um, them a lot more than it suits the um, Red Bull Holden. So, um, yeah, if he can jag a couple of wins, I mean, it all it's a bit fluky, but it also comes down to the endurance stuff. If you can get a couple of good endurance results, um, like Bathurst and uh, Sandown and, and things like that, then you can start to get some, some good points and that can have some big benefits. But the downside to that is you bomb out in those and it can have pretty decent effects on your championship standing. So, um, yeah, I think Scott McLaughlin's in a much, much better position than he was in last year. He seems to be a bit more consistent. And I think also with the fact that knowing how he lost last year's championship in that last race and basically the last lap, um, I think he he's a bit more uh, mentally in the right place and knows what he needs to do to win the championship. So I think he's sort of taking a bit more of a, a longer longer view of the longer term view of the whole championship. So I think he's really matured um this year. Just the way he talks after races, it's he doesn't he doesn't seem to have that same giddiness after a win that he perhaps had last year and um it was it was more about I've got a long term goal here. I need to keep my eyes on the He doesn't the have the Carlton football clubs about him. No, he does not. No, <laughs> no. But he might have been a little filthy because he's actually a red hot um, Western Bulldogs fan. Oh, there so, you go. Uh, he might have been a little, a little off after Friday. Hey, what, what's the other news coming out of the V8s? I believe Ford changing it up a bit. Yeah, well, the Falcons are gone as of next year. And it's not so much that Ford announced that they're pulling out of the Falcons, they're putting the Mustangs mm. in. So uh, that. Um, they're a cool looking car and I think it'll actually make I think it'll it might inject a bit more interest into um into the racing. Um especially having such an iconic name as the Mustang involved back in racing again. And they showed the um I saw on the coverage it was a few races ago now, they showed the different shapes and the shape of the Commodore and the Falcons as they are now is not it's not massively dissimilar across the top. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a lot different, and I think even the way the roll cages are at the moment, the roll cage is the same for both, t- both regardless of your um, which car company, and it doesn't fit in the Mustang. Uh-huh. So whether there's going to be a change to the roll cage shape 
design. I don't know. That sort of hasn't been worked out yet. But Mustang are definitely in, so they're going to have to do something. Where do they change the shape of the Mustang? Do you know the reason behind that? Like, is it to do with uh, local manufacturing? or No, or? I think I think it's a... Uh, Just it's, a different... Yeah, and I think also because the Mustang is more of a um, worldwide... Mm. Um, brand i think whether they just can then go right we're going to put anywhere where there's a ford racing we'll put a we'll put a mustang in and and just change the specs for whatever the the racing um specs in in that particular category are so no it should be interesting it'd be um uh whether it brings out a bit more um that rivalry between holden and ford um and particularly now with nissan going it looks like at this stage it's going to be back to just Ford and Holden next year so um, I know a lot of people poo-pooed when Nissan and Mercedes came in and um, this is not what and Volvo and this is not what we wanted but I think if you have a look at the number of teams it, it did actually add a bit to the to the category mm. which it wasn't dying by any stretch I think it'll always be a popular category but I think it sort of added a bit into it and just maybe brought some more spectators in but now with them sort of dropping off, whether maybe that's another reason. Um, if it's only going to be the two of them, they need to sort of spice things up mm. a little bit. So, but if you have a look, there's there's probably twice as many Commodores as there are Falcons in the in the field anyway. It's not like it's fifty fifty. So, whether it's Ford's way of sort of become staying relevant and and things like that, who knows? But that no, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see what uh, how they go and what they look like. Chris Monte Carlo and Formula One, they sort of go hand in hand, don't they? And that's where the the world's focus is when it comes to motor racing next weekend. Yes. So starting Thursday, which is unusual for Formula One. It's, I think it's the only uh, race that starts on a Thursday. Most of them start on Friday. Um, yeah, the, the big boys move to what many of them consider their home. I think a lot of the drivers live in, in Monte Carlo. So mm. I know Daniel Ricciardo, his official residence is there. Um, and uh, I can't ima- oh, I've never been there, but I can't imagine him sort of cruising around anywhere but Australia. He's just got that Australianism about him, doesn't he? Well, if you want a fancy car, it's probably easier to get it in yeah, Monte Carlo than know. it is in downtown Perth. It's good he's still got that Aussiness about him. Yes, oh, definitely. Um, and if you ever watch, if anyone ever watches his videos, if you follow him on social media or anything like that, he he posts a lot of stuff, and Red Bull posts a lot of stuff with him in it. And there's a lot of um, Aussieisms, if you want to call it that, and mm-hmm. things like that that he does, where he sort of takes the Mickey out of Australia or takes the Mickey out of those who think they're mocking Australia. And he's he's a good character. He's he's still kept a very down to earth attitude despite the industry that he works in, which doesn't have a real lot of no. down to earth people in it. So the uh, the last race didn't necessarily go that great for ricardo he finished fifth never really in it um just was constantly drifting back and back and ended up he was in sort of in no man's land he was about 15 seconds behind the next person and 15 seconds in front of the person behind him so he was basically just doing his own race and cruising around and then he started firing out these quickest laps and i think he ended up with the quickest lap of the race but he didn't seem to be ever catching anyone, so I'm not sure what's going on there. But Monte Carlo will suit the Red Bull um, car a lot more than some of these others do, um, which will be good news, particularly given that um, 
Lewis Hamilton in the last race looked like he'd gone back to being his dominant best again. He's had a pretty scratchy start to the F1 season and got a couple of... Like, he looked really good in Melbourne until um, it sort of went a bit pear-shaped and um, he sort of lost the lead on um, uh, pit stop, like a strategy error. Uh, or not so much a strategy error from them, but just sort of the virtual safety car came out and cost him that race. But he jagged the race in Baku when he really didn't desert. He was sitting third and was like comfortably third and then everyone in front of him just found ways to, to crash and burn. So um, he's up two on the trot now, but there the Mercedes relies on straight line speed, whereas the um, Red Bull has got faster corners and Monte Carlo is very tight and weavy as I'm sure you've all pictured it and seen it a thousand times before mm. so uh, no, I think there's uh, um, I think Ricardo would would consider himself to be one of the favourites for, for this race and if he can just if he can get a bit lucky if he can his practice times have been really quick Basically, every race they've said his race times in the practice have been, like in their race simulation, has been right up there with the quickest, if not the quickest. But it just doesn't seem to, um, it doesn't seem to happen when qualifying comes around. It's like Ferraris and Mercedes are just able to turn up the engines that little bit more and, and just get that extra bit out of the car. Whereas it just seems like Red Bull's on the limit all the time, just trying to keep up with. The eighty percent of the others. So, but with this one, the turning up the engines isn't going to do a real lot around Monte Carlo. So, um, hopefully that that'll that'll help him out. So he's he's got a bit of form there. He has qualified on pole before, and he actually, I think it was a couple of years ago when he was pole. Um, tactically, they pulled out this genius maneuver. They were on the right tire. Everyone else is on a different tire, and this is going to work out perfectly for him. And then it rained for the race, so we had to. They all started on a wet weather tire. So, hopefully, what luck he lost that year, he can sort of get it back uh, uh, this year. Because I think that was also the year where he went into the pits and pulled up in his pit bay, and there was no one there and no tires, and had to wait for like five seconds while they brought the tires out. So, it's not been the uh, the happiest place for him. But hopefully, that can that can turn around for this race. Well, that sound can mean only one thing. We've got Marcus's whip around. What have you got for us, Marcus? Yes. Well, Chris, the NBA playoffs are well underway, deep into the playoffs, actually, and also NHL. Do you want to give us a bit of an update on how things are going? Yeah, well, okay, we'll kick things off with the basketball, the NBA. Mm. Um, as of this morning, Cleveland hit back at uh, Boston. Boston won their two home games pretty comfortably, and a lot of the talk was that Cleveland were were done, um, but uh, no. Cleveland went back home and and did what they had to do today, and, and pretty comfortably got over the top yeah. of uh, the Celtics today. On the other side of things, we've got Houston and Golden State locked at one all. Golden State pinched the first game in Houston, so you'd have to think that they were the favourites from from here on in. But that game too, Houston were pretty dominant. So um, Steph has not been having a good. A uh, couple of shooting games, so he needs to sort of up his accuracy. During the playoffs, how many of the games have been won away from home? It seems like it's a massive home court advantage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would think that sort of ninety percent of them are, but but that surprises me given the the amount of games they're playing in the season proper, and they're on the road for that long. So yeah, 
Well, I mean, but you're also you've got the best, so mm. it's not like you're playing spuds away anymore. So mm. you, you've you've particularly when you're down to the last four, um, you don't generally get too many hack teams. So yep. that that can literally be the only difference is that home court advantage and the crowd getting involved. Because I know uh, Boston, they're they're very polite in Boston and um, <laughs> very. Uh, um, Generous towards the opposition. Um, so really, that win away is almost worth two. The Golden State one, mm. yeah, that or that, and because it was the first game as well, it sort mm. of sent shockwaves through. Um, I think Houston, who coming in as the number one seeds, would have fancied their chances. And if anyone's going to knock Golden State off, it is it is Houston. But um, it was really weird the press conference. Houston play a lot of um, isolation basketball. So for those who aren't big basketball heads, it's basically whoever's got the ball at the top of the key basically shoots the ball. So generally it's James Harden will stand there and bounce the ball. And still this weird, like, just weirdo stat. In game one, James Harden bounced the ball more than Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant combined. <laughs> um, so Never heard that sort of stat before. I've never heard uh, balls bounced as a statistical category either, but... Um, it's basically whoever's got the ball, everyone else get out of the way and they'll either drive, they'll pull up for three, they'll do whatever they want to do, but it's basically it's a one-man band type thing. And Golden State just shut them down entirely, but, yeah, game two was the entire opposite. They they went bananas and um, I think they won by sort of 20-odd points. So both both are still pretty even. I I think Boston are comfortably a better team than Cleveland, but any team that's got LeBron mm. is always a threat. I think on the other side, I still think Golden State are a better team. Um not only are they a champion team, but they're also a team of champions. They've got some they've got four legitimate all-star players on their team. So, um Houston will have their work cut out, cut out especially given they've they've dropped one at home. Now, if we move across to the ice hockey, I know we've been getting just enormous feedback about the NHL. Mm-hmm. Heaps. <laughs> <laughs> now, as it stands at the moment, I did say in the golf last week that we were on choke watch yes. for Webb Simpson, but it turns out that after all of my talk about Washington choking in the last couple of years in their sort of conference finals... Mm-hmm. This year, they've decided to take it to another level. They've gone one <laughs> step further before they've started choking. Now, Tampa Bay uh, are playing Washington at the moment. Tampa Bay uh, were the top seeds coming in, so they had their two home games first. Washington won both games on Tampa's ice. Yes. And so you think, all they got to do is come home. Same as the basketball. Home ice has just been huge throughout the entire um, playoffs. Tampa Bay are now 3-2 up against Washington, having won both of Washington's games and then another one this morning. And this morning's game, Tampa Bay scored within 19 seconds of the um, drop of the puck. So um, signs didn't look good. And Washington scored a couple um, late goals to sort of make the score look a bit more respectable at 3-2, but Tampa looked um, too good. Now, on the other side, I did... Mentioned last week that I thought Winnipeg were looking the goods and mm-hmm. were 1-0 up over um, the Vegas Golden Knights. Things haven't exactly gone according to plan for Nostradamus Parker here. <laughs> uh, Vegas are now 3-1 up against Winnipeg and uh, look the goods. So, yes, who'd have thought that it's looking at this stage as though the playoffs are 
in the ice hockey, keep in mind, Vegas in the middle of the desert, mm-hmm. Tampa Bay in the middle of Florida, which for those who don't know what the climate is like in, in Florida, in Australia you think Cairns. So it is basically Cairns versus Alice Springs in the <laughs> uh, ice hockey playoffs. Who would have thought it? You wonder how many players... I mean, you can't play... Like, uh, if you're playing football, people learn how to... Or soccer, you learn by just going down the park and, and you learn your just basic skills as through childhood. There's no one in these areas that are organically coming through this, are they? I, guess, I mean, I guess they've got the rinks and they've stuff. They've all got but... rinks and things, but it's not like you've got the Northern um, America... Um, like your Chicago's and and Minnesota's and places like that, or even Canada, where it's just you, your local park is just as likely to be your local lake mm. that's just frozen over, and you can muck around out there. But I wonder if they have strong ice hockey comps or programs there. Like, they probably really is it. You probably don't need it because no. you don't need. You're not all your recruiting is done through. Yeah. Um, it's just a location through yeah. draft. So um, as long as you can get. Those franchises can get bums on seats yeah. when the games actually are there. It's funny, they can, isn't it? Yeah. they can recruit Canadians. They can half the half the teams now are like Croatian names and and things like that that have got more letters than you yeah. can fit on the back of their jersey. So um, it is a very um, global sport. Mm. Like it may not necessarily seem so to Australia because we're not. Yeah, we stink at it. But um, now they've they've actually got the World Championships going on currently which i think is in croatia i think anyway um and so america's actually in the semi-finals but it's full of all the people that have already finished their mm. nhl commitment so okay. why the world governing body wouldn't just delay it a couple of weeks and wait till yeah. the the biggest competitions finish playing i don't know but um Still, you'd think, uh, like, where does the passion for the sport come from in the, you know, a desert and a humid area? Like, I guess it's just a love of sport in general. And, and if, I think if you get a side base there, fantastic. Well, I think the other thing is that with, um, in America, there's a lot of people that go and travel for college mm. and then they end up just staying there. So there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily native to where they're living at the moment that, um, that may have come from like a Chicago and go, oh, I want to see ice hockey. Where can I go and see it? Mm. And if you've got a city of 3 million, you've only got to get 20,000 to a game. Yeah. It's not probably as hard as you, you might imagine to to do that. So, um, yeah. I'd... I'm not thinking big enough. I'm not thinking global. I'm too small town. That's that's my problem. It comes with living in Adelaide, unfortunately. <laughs> what else have we got in your little whip around? Well, my favourite name in surfing, Lakey Peterson. Oh, she was in, involved in the Rio Pro in Brazil. Unfortunately for her, came second. Good news for Australia. Steph Gilmore took out the event. Yeah, now I watched this and oh, a bit of this. Not can't say I watched it all because mm. it's on at like four o'clock in the morning. But um, I watched a bit of this and I'll be honest, it looked disgusting. Rio, if you think back to the Olympics and the water quality issues that mm. they had... They are pulling out garbage and stuff, weren't they? Uh, this looked like, if you can imagine, you've just had a bowl of ice cream and you go, I'll do the right thing by the missus. I'll just put a bit of water in this to... <laughs> oh, and you no. get that crusty-looking <laughs> stuff. That's basically Ugh. what this water looked like. It had, like, brownie-looking foam on top of the water. And I just went, oh, that looks just disgusting. And then what happened to the men's? 
as an Philippe Aussie. Toledo. Beats Felipe. Felipe. As he's known to his mates. Beats <laughs> Aussie. Rookie. Wade Carmichael. Yes, he's uh, quite the rookie. But hometown hero, Felipe, obviously Brazilian. So um, the fans absolutely go nuts for him in Brazil. And they were lined miles along the beach. Um, and he got a hero's welcome when he came out of the water. So He'd be a bigger name if he was called Felipe. Well, possibly, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, his mates. There would have been more people lined up. His mates call him Felipe, and uh, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are, are you gonna, now? We're going to finish off now. We've got some mixed results, some mixed news here. Some of it's bad, some of it's good. Hmm. What do you want to kick off with? Uh, we're looking at. We'll kick off with the. We'll kick off with the good news first. Okay. Well, let's turn to the cricket field and. I'm all for seeing new countries and, and new involvement in the sport. And we saw Ireland take on Pakistan in a test. Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Now, you probably would have, without knowing too much about the Ireland side, thought it would be a pretty comprehensive victory for, for Pakistan. Bow, but Ireland, Ireland put in a really, really strong effort. Yeah, and it was weird because the first day was washed out. And I thought, oh, that's typical. They're, they're not even going to get on mm. that. And it looked a bit shady after the first innings. They took their uh, Ireland ended up being forced to follow on. But um, uh, one of their fifteen O'Briens, um, I think, <laughs> to be sure, Ke- I think it was Kevin, yes. um, made a ton. His country's first ton, and got him back in the game and and set Pakistan a, a tricky little target mm. of one sixty. Give us a rundown of what happened in the chase. Well, early wickets, so they were three for fourteen. Which is uh, got match fixing all written all over to me, but wow, yes, that's a bit. Do we, do we, know, do we know a legal uh, person here that may? <laughs> but no, they went on to win, so of course it wasn't. Uh, and then there were a few other opportunities for Ireland that probably would have made it even closer. I think there were a couple of half chances. Mm. From what I sort of read, it, it, I think it was tense because any game that involves a small chase with Pakistan is always fraught with they could lose five for one and, and lose a game. But, but pretty much in any cricket, test cricket, any score over 150, you gotta, you got to earn it. Yeah. It's not just... Yeah, that's not going to just be a rollover. So. so I think in the end they were, what, were they five down? Five down. So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really happy that it was a competitive match. Uh, and a bit of... You love your stats. Tell us a bit about what it meant for Kevin O'Brien to make a century in terms of rankings. Well, my understanding, which albeit is fairly limited, it mm. was the highest ICC ranking score for anyone playing in their country's first test. Just, I don't understand how they work out the what those figures actually mm. mean, but they actually took it back all the way back to Australia's first test in... 1225 or whenever it was we played our first <laughs> test. Um, and it was even higher than the no-name all-star that, that made, I think he made 100 for Australia on debut as well. So, mm-hmm. But, um, no, Kevin O'Brien, he's been on the scene for a few years now, the one-day um, scene particularly and the T20 comps. Um, a handy, nuggety batsman. Um, no surprises from Ireland. He was redhead. Um, looks like a little leprechaun. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's two... I think his brother play. His brother definitely plays in the one-day team, mm-hmm. and I've got a feeling there may even be a third O'Brien in the team floating around somewhere, but there's probably a thousand of them floating around. But what I'm interested to see now is what happens with um, Owen Morgan. 
being Irish and mm. whether he is now locked into being an English player <laughs> or even though he would... I'm assuming he would have to hold an Irish passport, whether he's eligible to play for for Ireland. Oh, that'd um, be delicious if he... If he joined Ireland, it'd be good to see mm. someone outside of someone go from England yeah. somewhere else rather than the other way around. And do a bit of a Kepler vessels and yeah, or back. do like the entire England <laughs> lineup now and actually <laughs> learn their skills in one country and then go and play for another. So uh, good on Ireland. Um, this has been sort of a little while coming now. They've they've been a competitive one day team. They've obviously got the infrastructure. I believe they've got one or two teams in the county championship. So there is infrastructure there that um, allows them to play against good competition, which is what's sort of required. I think that's what sort of fell down a bit with with Bangladesh and, and potentially Afghanistan, who we're going to talk about shortly. But if you don't have that competitive um, first-class cricket competition in that country, things can sort of fall down um, if you don't have that those people to play against to push your game up. So, right, that was the good news. Now, yeah, well, cricket, I of... mean, cricket's brought us so much joy in Afghanistan. It, it's connected that country with the rest of the cricketing nations, probably put a human side to it, but uh, eight people killed and 45 wounded in a series of explosions targeting a cricket match in the eastern Afghan city of Jalalabad, which is just... Terrible news. That's heartbreaking. I mean, a bombing obviously is terrible in any situation, but a, a country that sport gives them a bit of hope and to have a, a cricket match, a local Ramadan Cup was targeted. Yep. Um, and this, yeah, is, just this is where uh, Rashid Khan, who mm. uh, people may know from uh, Adelaide Strikers fame, I believe he was actually playing in the game, Um it's all relatively new, so sort of details are a bit sort of mm. sketchy at the moment. Uh, but... No, I think he's uh, Rashid's still in the I- IPL. Oh, okay. Yeah. So but... this might be his home, somewhere around his hometown. I did see his name mentioned in all of these in the sort of brief uh, things that I But I saw. guess that gives us a, uh, a connect, a, a motive feel to it because uh, we've seen him. He's starred for the Adelaide Strikers, and to him to to see him grieving and and feeling shell shocked by this, I guess, makes it real. Because too often we'll see um, bombing statistics and think, oh, it's another part of the the world, and we're not too fussed about it. But for a for a country that just needs these sort of things, like for cricket to be, they've made the World Cup to to have that sort of hope, and only to have terror play a part against I mean, there terrible. is a picture floating around if you sort of look it up but there's one of the um afghan national um players mm. is actually carting his friend um off to hospital who's been wounded in the explosion and i mean we all we all had a bit of a laugh and or had a um, horror at the ball tampering scandal but this just puts things into into perspective that here you've got an equivalent of Dave Warner mm. picking someone up and carrying them off to hospital after being um, blown up, pretty much half blown mm. up. So, um, yeah, our best wishes go out to the Afghan team, and um, it's not necessarily the the best way to to end the show, but um, I think it's um, it's it's probably just it's a good way to just bring our our attentions back to the fact that these sports that we all love and talk about are. They're sports. Um, they're not 
well, in this case, it is a matter of life and death, but we do it to, to take our minds off of uh, our our lives and sometimes those things cross over and it's not always the greatest. Well said. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Gumshoe Sports Report. Special thanks to Marcus for his efforts this week. And special thanks to Philippe Toledo. <laughs> or Felipe Toledo, as his mates like to call him. And thanks to you for listening. Have a good week. <laughs>